You see, what happens is Satan wants to use your suffering in your life to pull you away from God. He's trying to try to use trials and difficulties because he wants you to turn your back against your maker, your creator, your redeemer, your savior. Does the Bible have answers for these atrocities? It does. God has allowed his saint Job to go through evil of a kind that's unfathomable. You see, Job was tempted when life was falling apart to curse God. When his riches were destroyed, when his children perished, when his health failed, would he still look to God? Was God enough for him? You see, typically when we talk about suffering, we have two basic explanations of it. Uh, Eric Ortland writes this in his book about Job. He says, we have a David-like suffering. David-like suffering is this, sin on our part. So we suffer because of sin. David, you know, for example, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And in Psalm 38, he talks about his wounds stinking and festering because of his own foolishness. It's why he cries in his heart in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's the David-like suffering because of sin, and then there's also the James-like suffering. This uh, example is we are suffering primarily because Christ is trying to grow us in Christianity, that we have some deficiencies that we need to grow in. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. But what we're talking about tonight, and I want to be very targeted, is we are talking about a Job-like suffering. It's not the result of sin. It's not based on the need for spiritual growth that you'll see in the life of Job. You see, Sometimes God ordains pain and loss that has nothing to do with sin and nothing to teach us besides the fact that God wants to show us that he is enough for us. He's trying to show us that he is all that we need. You see, God did this in Job's suffering and recorded it in Scripture. And so I'm going to be talking about that tonight. But we have another teaching element I want to show you, and that's a video which overviews the book of Job, then I'm going to come and begin our official message. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well... Is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. 
So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day, but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not 
just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical Turn in your Bibles with me to Job chapter 1. We're talking about the problem of evil and a Job-like suffering. Job chapter 1. This is what the word of the Lord says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings be- according to the number of them all. For Job says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job has every character quality necessary for a wonderful life. He has every character and virtue necessary for an abounding relationship with God. He feared the Lord wholly, completely. He turned away from evil. He had what we would say is the picture-perfect life. He had seven sons. Seven was the number of perfection and three daughters. So he had a large and prosperous family. And you saw in the text, just briefly we read, that he would even go and sacrifice for his kids just in case they may have sinned. He was an honorable man, and later in the book of Job, we uh, find that he took care of the homeless and he took care of the orphans. He was not perfect, but he pursued holiness. Uh, He showed in his life what true faith was and that true faith led to actions. What Job didn't realize though is there was something else going on about him. There was a conversation in the heavens. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth 
and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? This was the highest praise that the Lord could give to him. There was none like him in all the earth. You see, and when he says that word, my servant, God only uses that term for Abraham, for Moses, and for David. This is a man that followed wholeheartedly after God. But the main passage, the main text I want to zero in on as we answer the problem of evil and why is verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for no reason? Satan is saying to God, Job only loves you because of what you give him. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. He won't endure in a relationship with you if you take away all his secondary blessings. He won't to submit to you in life if it's filled with chaos and tragedy and trial. In fact, what Satan believes is Job will curse God, forget about God. And so the Lord gave permission to Satan to take away Job's earthly possessions, his property and his children, And he gave permission to strike Job's health. The question for Job was, was God enough? When he is stripped of all that he had, would he still worship God? And that's the question we face when we are wrestling with the problem of evil is, do we we worship God for nothing? Is our relationship with God transactional? Do we obey God because of what he gives us? Is our relationship based on what we gain? Do we treat God like a business partner? You see, I enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God that has been in my life. There's no way I would be here today preaching with you if it wasn't for God. He's given me my salvation. He's given me hope of eternal life. I'm constantly in his presence. And those are amazing blessings. And I know that this is amazing, but the question that is asked is, would I still praise him if God took things away from me? I have a beautiful, supportive, godly wife. I have three crazy kids. I have a wonderful church family that is here. If God took everything away, would I still praise him? Or would I be angry in my response? Would it end up exposing in my relationship that my relationship wasn't based on God for his sake, but for my sake and when I got in it. As Thomas Merton writes in his book, if we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. But that wasn't the case with Job. When he couldn't figure out an explanation, when he was scraping his wounds— Satan predicted that he would curse God and die, but Job did the opposite. Look at verse 21 with me, please. And Job said, Naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knows, and we need to know, we bring nothing into this life. 
and we're going to take nothing out of this life. All the losses that Job experienced, he would eventually experience when he died. And all the blessings that he had in life were a gracious gift from God. God is to be praised when he gives, and he's also to be praised when he takes away because we don't deserve anything. One author writes in his book, when people ask him, hey, pastor, how are you doing? He never says fine. He says, better than I deserve. Why? Because he knows that he is a poor, wretched, vile sinner who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You see, even in immense pain, Job recognizes that he's not worthy of God's blessing. And we need to recognize this too, church family. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's divine punishment. And yet, God loves us. God has given us his mercy. He has given us his grace. He has given us his peace. He has given us his favor. God has saved us. He's restored us. He's revived us. He's renewed us. We need to stop looking around and we need to look up to Jesus. Because he's saying he is enough for us. What God wanted from Job and what he wants from us is when we are facing deep trials, and this, I'm saying to you, it's not going to be easy. You're not just going to buck up and just do it. This is going to be through tears. That's one of the reasons I love the book of Job because you get to see so many chapters where Job is just pouring out his heart. This is going to be hard. But what God wants to show is that he is more than enough for us. Eric Ortland writes in his book, When God allows extreme and inexplicable suffering, when he appears to treat those who love him as if he hates them, the book of Job teaches that God is delivering us from our trivialization of God as a means to our ends and giving us an opportunity in the midst of unhidden and public grief to worship God as God for his own sake, regardless of any secondary blessings we might gain or lose. What other blessings can we learn from the book of Job? One of them is this. We live in a sinful world, but God is enough. Church family, you need to understand that we live between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation 20, okay? We live between Eden and the new earth. Evil has entered this world through the rebellion of angels. Adam and Eve's sin brought destruction and chaos and calamity into this world. In this life, suffering will come. The longer you live, the more you will experience it. So we should not get caught off guard when it does happen. Job faced a type of suffering that's hard to explain. And we might face or are facing the same. We must understand that on this earth that is decaying, we must expect to face tribulation. We must expect to face suffering, to face affliction and anguish and suffering of various kinds. In fact, author Christopher Ash writes in his commentary on Job, every Christian should wake up every morning and say, a deep, dark, spiritual battle is being fought over me today. But we can take comfort in knowing, as God explains in Job uh, chapter 38, That God is not the author of evil. God cannot be tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. That God is light and in him 
is no darkness at all. Job had no idea of this cosmic battle that was taking place in the heavens. He didn't realize that Satan was literally plotting to destroy his life, to devour him, to consume his faith, trying to prove that it was on shaky ground. But God is sovereign and orchestrated it, but he's not the author of evil. The prince of the world is seeking to destroy you and I. He also did this to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Do you hear this? What Jesus is saying to Peter? Satan is desiring to throw you up and like wheat you will just scatter. Your faith is just going to scatter away. Your faith is lacking. But God's faithful servant is going to say God is enough. You see, there is a battle raging for our hearts and our minds and our soul. And sometimes, again, if we don't know what's going happening, it may cause us to be fearful. But have hope. God is only going to tolerate evil for so long. You see, in uh, Job 38, he talks about it, that he keeps evil on a leash. And know this, Satan's power is limited. Satan is not God's rival. He's not God's equal. He had to come in line to ask God permission to accuse Job, and he has to do the same with us. And and, and you need to understand this too because Jesus talks about to Peter that he says that I am praying for you that you will hold fast, but when you you fail, I'm still going to pray for you that you will hold on to God. Do you hear this truth? Satan isn't all-knowing. God is. Satan isn't all wise. God is. Satan isn't all powerful. God is. Satan isn't present everywhere. God is. Satan can never, ever, ever get on God's level. He can't. And what we see in Job is nothing can touch you unless God grants his permission. Okay? You see, you need to understand this, and I heard this from an old preacher that Anything that we face, any suffering that we face, goes through the filtered hands of the Father. It's been filtered for us. And, and so sometimes and when I was dealing with this, like, it caused me like, just to tremble. But it's like, okay, but God promises that he will never leave me nor forsake me. So if he's allowing this chaos into my life, he better know I'm going to be clinging on to him and not letting go. And the same for you and I. We need to be like Job and say, Lord, though you slay me, yet I will hope in you. You see, what this suffering will do and what it's done in my life, I know in yours, it's going to drive you closer to God than you've ever been before. And you're going to see in this, he's more than enough for you. When he takes everything away, he's more than enough for you. You see, we live in a sinful world, but God is enough And our hearts may be tortured by pain, but God is enough. Scott and Janice Willis expressed the same cry of Job. You see, they were a pastor and his wife. They had uh, nine children. Six of them were in the car with them as they were driving from a family member's house in Wisconsin back to their home. And what happened is while they were on the highway, a driver who shouldn't have been driving, unskilled, He dropped an item from his van, and that item hit their van, 
blew up the gas tank and burned their kids alive. But they write in their track through the fire, and this is amazing. This is Job-like faith. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He writes, Janet and I want to praise and thank God. There is no question in our minds that God is good, and we praise him in all things. God is great. How in the world is someone able to express this? Rainy Alcorn talks in his book as he has a conversation with them, and they express this. The deep pain, the depth of our pain is indescribable. However, the Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow. You see, God's words have the word for you when you are experiencing pain. He, he has it in his text for you that you can cry out, and it's there. What gives us our firm foundation for hope are the words of God found in Scripture. Ben, Joe, Sam, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter, their children, are all with Jesus Christ. We know where they are. Our strength rests in God's word. Today, they say, Scott says, I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than I did before the accident. I have a stronger view of God's sovereignty than ever before. And Scott and Janet didn't say that the accident itself strengthened their view of God's sovereignty. Indeed, Scott, the pastor, had a sense of loss initially prompted suicidal thoughts, but rather their faith grew as they threw themselves upon the grace of God to live each day. Janet says, I turned to God for strength because I had no strength. She went to the Bible with a hunger for God's presence, and he met her. She writes, I learned about him. He made sense when nothing else made sense at all. If it weren't for God, I would have lost my sanity. You see, you may be going through immense pain, and your heart is tortured, but God is enough. You may be wondering, what in the world is God doing? But again, he is enough. The story of Job teaches us that God only tolerates evil for so long. He has it on a leech, and it will not last. He promises that. One author writes, evil is a temporary intruder, and suffering is a temporary break in God's goodness to us. Job, like suffering, helps us to see suffering in light of eternity. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul talks about it. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does this mean for the Christian? Renee Alcorn writes, For the Christian, this present life is the closest you and I will come to hell. For the unbeliever, this present life is the closest they'll come to heaven. But do you understand this for us as Christians? This is the closest we are going to come to eternal death. This is the closest that we're going to come to the eternal lake of fire. This is the most pain that we are going to go through. This is the only time when we are going to cry for us as believers in Jesus Christ. This is not going to be for forever. 
We are going to be forever with God singing his praises, fullness of joy at his right hand, declaring God is good. You see, your pain may be real. Your emotions may be frayed, but your suffering will come to end when you see Jesus face to face. You and I are going to be with God forever. And we have to remember that as hard as it is, this is not the end. This is momentary. It's hard for us in this life, but doesn't that mean if the pain is intense, how sweeter heaven's going to be? How sweeter it is going to be with the Lord? You see, God is enough, and God is enough because Christ is enough. Uh, Pastor Peter Kreef says this, Many Christians try to get God off the hook for suffering. Many Christians try to make excuses as to why God shouldn't be responsible for suffering. But here's the thing. God puts himself on the hook, so to speak, on the cross. Job foreshadows this in chapter 19, um, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And offer, and after my skin has thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This means when we hear of Job's uh, Redeemer standing on earth as his legal advocate, we should simultaneously hear Job confessing his hope that his Redeemer is going to rise above the dust, the dust and ashes that he's poured upon himself, triumphing over death. And that word for Redeemer is kinsman Redeemer. If you remember in the book of Ruth, it talks about the kinsman Redeemer that came to get Ruth. That kinsman Redeemer points to Jesus Christ. I, a Redeemer, came and stood on earth with us. You see, the problem of evil is a problem to God, but it's not something that he steps back from. He actually steps into. He, he comes into the pain. The Father sent his one and only Son for us because of the evil and the suffering that's taken place. He is involved. He does care. He is in tune with suffering. Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source, notice this, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. He suffered on our behalf for us to take our place because he understands and recognizes the pain of suffering. You see, he knows what it means to be thirsty and hungry and despised. He knows what it likes to be rejected and scorned and shamed. He understands what it means to be mocked and ridiculed and embarrassed. He understands being abandoned and misunderstood and unappreciated. Jesus knows pain. He knows evil. He knows betrayal. He knows what it's like to have the Father forsake him. And yet... He bore our wrath. Our wrath he bore upon himself and went to the cross and died for us. He gets suffering. Christ is enough for us because he came into it. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever, church family. Amen. He is. You see, Christ is 
enough for us. God has not given up on us. God is still there for us. We must hold fast to him because Christ is enough. You see, the thing that has gotten me through times of suffering is a song by Mercy Me called Hold Fast. And some of the lyrics go like this. To everyone who is hurting, to those who've had enough, to those that think they're undeserving, that should cover all of us, don't let go. I promise you there's hope. Hold fast. Help is on the way. Hold fast. He's come to save the day. One thing I've learned in my life that's stronger than my strife is his, his, his grasp. Hold fast. Nothing can pluck you out of the hand of your father. 